Welcome to episode 318 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. That was a long build-up there. I think I could go longer. I think you probably could too, but should you is the question. But should I? Find out next week on Design Details. (laughs) We've got a good show coming up, but before we get into it, boy oh boy, do we have some new supporters that need a shout out. If you didn't hear, Design Details is now a listener-supported podcast. Folks are supporting us, making this show every week, uh, paying our editor and producer and keeping all the internet, websites, and technologies alive. If you want to help support the show, go to patreon.com slash design details. This last week, we got new support from our pals, Bob Weisbecker, Bradford Ulrich, Danny Hagen, James Lyons, Jing Zhang, Melinda Yang, Paul Dippold, Ryan Parag, and Mike Hickman. Outstanding. Welcome to the family. We just broke 40 patrons this week, which is fucking amazing. I'm just so excited. Uh, We also have support from our golden microphone supporter, that's Sisu. Sisu is looking for a thoughtful and data-savvy designer to help build the next generation of analytics software. You can find out more about this role at sisu.ai. Uh, Sisu is where Michi Kao works. She was on a previous episode of Design Details. You can also listen to that episode. Thank you, Sisu, for supporting the show. Thanks, Sisu. Marshall, we have a little bit of follow-up. We do. Okay, so first off, another catch-up from the episode we did a couple weeks ago where we talked about Android 10 gestures. So, well, the originator of this question, the reason we talked about it in the first place was a listener named Yule Albert. So after the episode where we talked about it, he, he thanked us for the review and he, he agreed with our assessments, but he also added a video from, so basically it's Palm OS. Do you remember Palm OS from back in the day? Like this is early at the beginning of the Android iOS Palm Wars. So I never used Palm OS, but I'm very familiar with its place in tech and design history as being incredibly influential and, and ahead of its time. But I never got to use it. That's my memory too. But I had no clue how influential they were, how early they were that influential. So the video that you will sent is the audio from the iPhone 10 keynote dubbed over someone doing the exact same thing that they are touting in the audio on a Palm OS device. I think I forget what is this the Pebble or something like that? But from what, basically like 10 years ago? Yeah, from 10 years ago, back in 2010. So, uh, almost 10 years ago, they they already had all of these gestures figured out and implemented on a thing that, that failed. All of them. It's uncanny. Almost, it's uncanny how similar the iPhone 10 gestures are in relation to this Palm OS. I kept watching the video and it kept doing more things where I was like, well, that's got to be it. Oh, no, there's more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it got to Control Center, I was like, all right, that's it. We're done. Uh, yeah. Like Control Center, swipe from the top right corner of the screen. And I'm disappointed in myself for not having remembered these patterns because I absorb everything and I thought I had absorbed the majority of the of the Palm stuff before it disappeared from you know the zeitgeist. But now we are... At a place where those those premonitions from a decade ago are coming true today in, in the hands of a billion people. That's pretty awesome. You know what would be a fantastic episode, Marshall? We should figure out how to get a designer from Palm OS on this show and talk to them. Oh, yeah. 
Mm. Listeners, do you know somebody? Yeah. Oh, man. I can start poking around. That would be fun. But if anybody has a, a scoop or knows somebody that worked on these gestures for Palm OS, that would be a fun conversation. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, real quick as an aside, I'm going to burn a cool thing from the future here. So, uh, have you heard of a company called General Magic, Brian? General Magic. No, but I saw someone tweeting about a documentary by that name, right? Uh-huh. Okay, hit me. Yeah, so it, there's a documentary. I, I purchased it on iTunes. I have yet to watch it, but it looks amazing. The trailer, check it out, link in the show notes. But it's basically the same thing of they invented smartphones. They invented the iPhone in the 80s, right? Like they had all of the ideas of the thing we have in our pockets today Back in the 80s, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't even conceive. Well, they could conceive of it existing, but there's no way that it would have existed. And one of their advisors was the head of Apple at the time, and he stole all their shit and made the Newton. Yeah, really interesting. What? Some similarities here between these stories. Yeah, yeah. Does that make you excited that those things are coming to fruition? Or does it make you feel disappointed that we are building ideas that existed 40 years ago? No, it makes me excited that these ideas are, are coming to fruition. It makes me sad that the people who had those ideas aren't getting credit for them and, yeah, yeah. and weren't responsible for actually implementing them and you know getting them in everybody's pockets. But it also, a thing you didn't list, it makes me wonder what things are being invented now that we are dismissing that will come back in a decade, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'd have to think for a minute to try and and guess, but it's probably going to be something goofy that we're doing with AR. Like we're going to look back at AR and VR that we're doing right now with our phones and, and the cameras and be like, ah, how, how childish, uh-huh. <laughs> how naive were we back in 2019? Just, you know, measuring things with our phones. We now have X that <laughs> is, does this automatically and imports it to our brain. Well, I think the, the equivalent would be if, if somebody's doing something in AR or VR today where we're like, oh, that's a nice little tech demo. What a cute little parlor trick you have there. And then it becomes ubiquitous in a decade. You know what uh, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can keep going. So we do have one more tiny bit of follow-up. So very interestingly, last week we talked about dark mode. And one of the examples that we called out for dark mode when we were talking specifically about elevation was the Instagram app because the Instagram app in light mode does things in a little bit of a confusing way, at least Marshall and I thought so. From a hierarchical standpoint. Yeah. But you know, they're consistent about it. So that's that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. And so between the time that we recorded and the time the episode was released, lo and behold, Instagram released their dark mode. <laughs> yeah, they did. I, I'm going to take full responsibility for it. Like they heard the episode. They heard the episode and they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> they were tapped into our, our simple cast recording and uh, they heard us and they were like, oh, let's whip this up in a couple days. And then before the episode could come out, they released a dark mode just to embarrass us, Brian. This is the logical extreme of people paranoid about Facebook ads listening to their microphone. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the logical extreme is they're listening to us record podcasts. And for whatever reason, this idea stood out to them. <laughs> yep. Okay, that's obviously not true. Yeah. Well, anyways, the one thing I'd call out is in their dark mode, they did color the body background I'm pretty sure it's an off black because I'm not noticing any clear smearing unless my eyes are just broken. So I think they might have gone with the off black, but they did make the header, uh, the nav bar and the tab bar slightly brighter. Which is the opposite of the light mode. Which is the opposite of the light mode, but the correct way of handling the the hierarchy here. The two views that are confusing to me are the profile view and the search tab where the body background is 
no longer that near black. It's kind of a, a, a brighter gray, and then buttons are near black. So buttons appear depressed into the view from an elevation standpoint. And those are the two that stood out as maybe being a little bit off, but hmm. I want to know why that, that works the way it does. So we'll try and get some answers. We'll ask our, our grapevine. Yes. See what they know. All right, Marshall, that's it for follow-up. Should we get into some questions? We should. And this first one is from a listener. Our first listener question comes from Brandon Weiss, a friend of the pod. Brandon posted this question on our GitHub repo, which is where you too can ask questions. If you want to ask questions for future episodes, go to github.com slash specfm. You'll find the design details repo there and you can just open an issue. And that's, that's how we keep track of all these questions. All right. Brandon asks, a little bit of a long question. We'll try and truncate this appropriately, but here we go. Brandon says, I'm trying to avoid saying the words should designers code <laughs> and unintentionally bringing about the end of days, capitalized. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on why most product development teams are structured the way they are. It seems like modern software companies have cross-functional teams, that is, a team made up of at least one product person, designer, and programmer, but the people are rarely, if ever, cross-functional themselves. Uh, in theory, the three disciplines are supposed to collaborate, but the results of that collaboration seem to be about what you could expect if you try to get three people from the dark ages each from a different continent and each speaking a completely different language to build a spaceship together <laughs> that's a hell of a metaphor do you have strong feelings about this brandon <laughs> so brandon has an unpopular opinion that the disciplines of product design and programming are intrinsically linked to a degree that makes it extremely difficult to do a great job if you only understand one discipline a self-described unpopular opinion by the way yeah we're, we're not making a value judgment all right so brandon continues it seems that the companies doing the best work for the least amount of effort with the most enjoyment and with the highest tenure tend to primarily hire multidisciplinary people that are able to closely collaborate and here's the question the number of companies that hire and work this way is so small relative to the total number of software companies that they could be a rounding error. Why do you think that is? So to sum up, why why are product teams composed of people who are supposed to work cross-functionally but are not cross-functional themselves? I-shaped, not T-shaped is what I think he's getting at. Yeah. So I guess... You know, I think we're all going to have different perspectives here. And Marshall, your and my perspective will certainly be different than most people just by having worked at larger companies. I mean, I know you've worked at smaller companies in the past, but for the last several years, you've been at a big company and Google and Facebook certainly have this structure that Brandon describes, which is like a product person, a designer and a programmer that is a team or maybe, you know, like a few programmers. That's such a common composition. I guess the question is, why are more of those people not the same? Like, why couldn't one person just be doing all of that and making the, the team smaller, smoother, faster, collaborations easier, especially if all of them are, if, if all three of those people are three plus, bring that same degree of skill and cross-functional ability to the table? Why don't more people hire people like that? I think the quick answer is there's not a whole lot of people like that to hire. Yeah, that's a good quick answer. And uh, yeah, I like that Brand said, I don't want to say should designers code. But I think I've been thinking about this idea of a unicorn. I think it's kind of a meme at this point, like a designer being a unicorn is a designer who can code. I think that's actually not possible anymore, or maybe it hasn't been possible for a long time. And like if we add in product management into that, 
the ability for a single person to be really good at product and also really good at design. And then when you get into coding, it becomes so broad. It's like, okay, can they make iPhone apps, Android apps, websites? Can they do the front end and the back end? Mm-hmm. Are they really good at animation and, and visuals? Can they do user research? Like, there's so many disciplines that uh-huh. to expect that of one person seems entirely unreasonable. And thus, kind of breaks this idea of a unicorn being one person who can do it all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I I suppose your frustration seems founded, but I don't know that there's any solution except to say that your observation seems true. Like there are a handful of companies, and based on my observation, it's usually tiny startups created by people who have left their big code jobs. Mm-hmm. And they've sort of aggregated the top five to ten people from from their previous work, and those five to ten people are creating incredibly good or powerful or, or delightful software because all of them can work together so well. That seems to be a common pattern: is is that like ex employee turned founder, and then these little startups are are doing really cool work. Yeah, and I, and I think startups specifically have to be super economical with their hires. Like, if you can hire a person who can do three jobs, you're going to definitely hire them over somebody who can only do one job, right? Especially when there's only ten people at the company or whatever, right? Whereas if you're a giant company, you can hire strict disciplined people that stay in their one lane and it's a bonus if they know how to speak the language of the other disciplines but it's not required because you have plenty of other people who speak those languages and you know I don't know I I think it's just a function of the structure and size of the company what is preferable right yeah the structure and size changes like The other thing too, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like we can still lean on this excuse that design or or digital product design is still pretty new, right? Like this idea of an engineer, a product manager, and a designer being the like three legs of a stool, like that idea still feels pretty new, at least in my mind. Do do you agree, Marshall? Yeah, and and I I would argue that 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 stool would, you know, it's not going to fall over, but it needs more legs. But like add in marketing and and research, and then you go downstream like post-launch and data science. I don't know. It just seems like yeah, these three roles are pretty good at launching the product or, or building the product, not even launching it, but building it. But to actually have like a really good, successful company, you'd kind of need to bring in more roles, like the marketing and sales and all this kind of stuff. And those are the invisible jobs that don't get the glamour of being on stage and getting to point at mocks and saying, I did that. But like the sales calls and and the marketing funnels, like those, the ads, right? Like those are things that are also impactful here. Mm-hmm. And I think you could even subdivide some of these things. Like a, a front-end engineer is very different from a back-end engineer as far as like what they have to know and what they do. Same thing with like an interaction designer is very different from a visual designer, right? You could have a person that does both of those things, and a lot of people do, but those are separate disciplines that require a different background. So I, I suppose I'm... I hope we answered your question, Brandon. Although I, I don't think we did because I, I think the answer is kind of what Marshall said at the beginning. It's the easy one, which is there just aren't that many people who are really, really good at doing everything required to launch a product. Like finding all these multidisciplinary people takes a lot of years of experience. They need to also not be working at like a big tech company, right? Like a lot of uh-huh. these anecdotal examples that I'm sure you're seeing are are probably smaller teams and startups that are doing some of this amazing work. 
So I don't know. And, and also the people who have all those skills can justifiably charge a lot of money. And if they have families, they might just opt to take the more money and work at, at a larger company and not be... Utilizing their full skill set? Utilizing, yeah. Not necessarily utilizing the full skill set. And maybe they're also frustrated, but the money's good because they still bring all this like cross-functional collaboration ability to the table just by, by virtue of having those skills. So maybe there's an expense part of this, which is also why I think it's a lot of ex-employees turned startup co-founders. That seems to be a common pattern here because they're all people that trust each other and that's worth that's worth a lot of money to be able to just trust the people that you work with. And mm-hmm. That takes a long time to build up for strangers, but if you've worked together for a long time, yeah. I think one of the points he makes earlier on in his uh, little preamble to the question is the metaphor we mentioned earlier of like different people speaking different languages trying to talk to each other, right? And I think there's definitely a a little bit of a middle ground here where like I am, I would not consider myself an engineer. I would not even consider myself like a coder of any kind. But I have done coding in the past enough that I have a lexicon now that I can speak UIKit to my iOS engineers, right? Like I I know the names of the things and I know kind of how they're supposed to work together and what the right pattern is as far as like the code, you know, like what the names of classes and shit are, right? And, And components in the code. So I can say UI table view. And not only do they know exactly what I mean, but they also are kind of like, it's also a little bit of brownie points of like, oh, shit, you know, table <laughs> Ooh, view. You know? Table view, son. Wow. <laughs> hey, he knows what that means. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, uh, rattle off some esoteric name of a thing, even though I don't know how to implement it and I couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't do anything with it. I know the name for it and that's enough to be yeah. far more useful than if I was just trying to describe something with designer words to an engineer. I got to say, actually, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that you and I have our own little bubble and we we come from the san francisco new york like big city tech scenes so our our perspectives are definitely colored in a different way here but brandon mentioned that people are rarely if ever cross-functional themselves and i gotta say i've worked with a lot of cross-functional people Mm -hmm. i think i don't know maybe github is just like one of these weird anomalies but like most people i work with have a programming background I think product is sort of the nebulous one. Like I think a good PM is really hard to define, but you know one when you work with one or when you see one. Yep. <laughs> but like articulating the role of a product manager is really fucking hard because it it seems so dependent on that product manager's coworkers. Some product managers I found really need to be defining product direction. But sometimes if the design and engineering team or or leadership has already done product direction, the best PMs are about removing roadblocks and just like helping people get shit done. It's like pseudo management, I guess, but like in, in the context of the the project itself, but they're not product visionaries, but they're still a really good PM. So I don't know, that one feels a little bit more nebulous. I think there's also something to say for like reporting structure. Like if, if the lines are blurry and everybody kind of does everybody's jobs, it's like, it's really easy to step on toes or duplicate effort or, you know, what's the reporting structure? Like if, if I do design and engineering, do I report to a design lead or do I report to an eng lead? Like, how does that work? Which side am I on? I don't know. When, when roles are more clearly defined, it, it is a lot easier from a structural standpoint, I guess. But when your company is small and you only have 10 people and everybody is all hands on deck all the time, 
then it's probably less of an issue when, when everyone's literally in the same room. The entire company fits in a room. Yeah, yeah. Let me toss a hypothesis at you, Marshall. Hit me. What if people don't want to be cross-functional because they want to gatekeep their role or make it seem as though their role is less feasible for others so that they can feel more important or have greater control over that role? So for example... I feel like this is a leading question, Brian. <laughs> No, this is a hypothesis. Like, what if this is what's happening? Do you, do you agree that that could be a reason that there's not as many multidisciplinary people because people realize that there's a lot of leverage in just specializing in the one thing and making it hard for other people to feel like they could contribute to that one thing? That hasn't been my experience. Hasn't been my experience, but I'm wondering if that's that could be happening. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't have visibility into the rest of the industry, so I don't know. But my local experience would would beg to differ. Yeah, I guess the last thing that comes to mind for me on this topic is I spent a long time thinking that I wanted to be a really good engineer. But I recently realized that I actually just like being able to talk to really good engineers, uh-huh. you know, which is kind of what you're describing, like having that lexicon and the shared vocabulary and being able to earn the respect of these cross-functional peers, but letting the person who's the best at doing the thing do the thing the best way. Yeah. That seems preferable to me than me trying to do all three things and have all three things be the best. That just seems unrealistic and stressful and not even as fun. And maybe not even always as helpful. Like, I, I think probably the most like ROI you could get as far as like, you know, in, investing time to learn a whole different discipline. Like, I think dipping your toe in the water of the other dip- disciplines and understanding the lexicon and being able to speak the language, even though you can't do the thing they do, is is the most useful thing f- for your time, right? So, like, the best engineers I've ever worked with are ones who could speak design language, and they knew what the difference between margins and padding was, and they knew, like... I didn't have to explain to them and walk them, hold their hand and walk them through my mocks. They were able to interpret what I was doing and what I was trying to imply without me ever having to say a word because they knew the language, right? Right. So it goes both ways, right? So I don't know. I, I think being as good of an engineer as you are a designer and as good as you are of a, a, a product manager or something, like that's unrealistic and the amount of well, either you're a genius and uh, autodidact or something, and you've taught yourself all of this stuff in an incredibly fast amount of time in order to start making money when you become an adult, you know, before you become an adult. I will say those people do exist, but again, oh, absolutely. Like, super rare, right? Yeah, but I ain't one, and, yeah. and, and they're really rare. You know, you don't work with them very often. So the more realistic thing to expect of us mere mortals is, you know, do your job as best as you can do it and try to be the best at what you do. And know enough about what everybody else does that you can be dangerous, you know? Yeah. All right. Okay. Let me try and hit you with this this idea. So Brandon laid out this metaphor. He said, the result of collaboration with people who aren't super cross-functional themselves seems to be about what you could expect if you got three people from the Dark Ages, each from a different continent, speaking a completely different language to build a spaceship together. I think it's not necessarily about getting all three of those same people on the same continent speaking the same language, but it could be about having those three people having a telephone line and a translator and a blueprint. Like, I don't know, it doesn't have to necessarily be making them all the same, but providing great links and communication channels between them where they can leverage each other well 
yet still get the benefit of having three separate land masses and three separate languages that are specialized for what they do, right? Yeah, I took a couple of years of Spanish in high school, which was, you know, an age ago, but and I, I am not a fluent Spanish speaker, but I can order a meal and, and ask someone where the bathroom is, right? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's enough to do the things I need to do. Uh, you're such a unicorn, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> stop, but keep going. Yeah, what else? <laughs> what else did you want to say about me? Yeah. Nice? Oh, sorry, were you saying something? Yeah, yeah keep, keep going. Uh, yeah, but no, no, I think like there's, there's a minimum bar to be able to communicate, and I think there are diminishing returns on investment after that bar is met. Maybe I'm wrong, though. Who knows? I'm wrong all the time, Brandon. Yeah, Brandon, this is a, a fun topic. I think we are agreeing with you that the disciplines are linked and that you should be able to understand one another. Absolutely. And I think we're in agreement that it is rare to see people people on the same team who are each individually really good at all of the roles. That I do, do agree that that's rare. Mm-hmm. But should designers code? But should designers code? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. It depends. Yeah, it, it, depends, it depends. It depends. Okay, hopefully that was helpful, Brandon. Uh, we'll have a link to this this question on the show notes. And if other people have ideas, I think this would be fun to get more people chiming in on. Because uh, yeah, for sure. Lots of angles to this. And Brandon, I'm sure you have your own pet theories that we didn't talk about. Like, uh, it seems to me that you've thought of this and you wanted to just poke us to see what we thought. So <laughs> yeah, let us know what you think. Yeah, if you're, if you're listening and you're like, they're so dumb. They haven't considered this aspect. Well, leave a comment on the, on the issue and we'll, we'll catch up and follow up next week. Yeah. Brandon is an, an engineer as well. I do know Brandon. So maybe he'll have the engineering perspective of, ugh designers they they don't know shit (laughs) (laughs) he's not wrong not wrong okay let's move on we got another not a listener question no i was scrolling through twitter which is a relatively rare occurrence for me lately but uh, i was scrolling through twitter and i came across this thread and i sent it to you and i said thoughts and then we got talking about it and and i had a lot of thoughts apparently so Let's get into this. Okay, so the tweet is from... It's a tweet storm or a, a tweet thread. There's a lot in here. Yeah, this is this is a full thread. So the, the tweet is from a lady named Lily Dart. And I will not read through the entire thread because that would not be fun for anyone, but I'll, I'll try and distill it down. So the, it starts with this. Design leaders of Twitter, do you get given a hard time for not being, quote, hands-on anymore? And then she says... I can build a high-performing team in less than six months and increase your turnover. I'm not sure what that means. Like, turnover is usually a bad thing. I think decrease. I think she meant decrease, but but I'll assume another positive thing. All right, so, but mention that I haven't wireframed recently, and suddenly I'm getting looks of actual pity. So she then goes on to say, People don't expect chief design officers to be building prototypes in between meetings with the board, do they? Does that make the CDO less of a designer? At what point in one's career is it considered reasonable that you might just do, well, just, management and strategy? Is it even reasonable to expect someone to do big picture strategy one moment and worry about the styling for disabled buttons the next? Okay, so, uh, yeah, is it healthy for a head of or director level designer to be dictating decisions of that level? When does that become micromanagement? So I think this is a really interesting prompt and it's it's gotten some decent engagement. People people are replying, some funny, some serious. But this made me think a lot of things. Brian, did it make you think things? Yeah, it made me think things. Let's let's talk it through and see how close we align. Okay. All right. 
design leaders. So let's scope this to design managers, directors of design, VPs of design, and chief design officers. Are those like loosely the four roles that we would call a design leader? Yeah. Okay. Should design leaders be building prototypes? Should they care about the styling of buttons? Should they care about the corner radius of a modal? I mean, I think they should care, but should they be directly involved in it? Probably not if their job entails them doing bigger picture things. And and I think it comes back to the first paragraph of the third tweet in this thread, which is, is it even reasonable to expect someone to do big picture strategy one moment and worry about the styling for disabled buttons the next, right? That's what you're getting at. And that might not be reasonable, but that's kind of that's kind of what I do. Like that's that's a pretty straightforward description of my job. So I think this is the distinction that is your title is not design manager, right? Your title is a lead designer. Right. So it makes sense that you would be responsible for the styling of buttons and, and corner radius and all this stuff. But as a lead of doing that, you also care about big picture strategy. Yeah, I'm. Uh, we mentioned T-shaped earlier. I, I'm, I'm also T-shaped as far as like my influence. Okay. I influence my team, but I also influence the org. Okay. That's part of my level that I need to be doing, right? Right. So let's, let's jump back to the second tweet here, and maybe this is where we get into controversial land. So if you changed from being a lead designer to a design manager, are you a designer anymore? If you're not making mocks or prototypes or getting your hands dirty. Okay, let's dig into that. So okay. your perspective is, if you do not make mocks, you are not a designer. Yeah. Interesting. You're something else, right? Like, And, and the, thing, the thing you are now is not a designer, but it is an evolution of a designer, right? Like you probably couldn't do the things that you're required to do in that role had you not been a designer at one point. But if you're not designing, I don't think you can call yourself a designer. You're a head of design, right? You're the, the operative word here is head of or director of. Like you're directing. You're not designing. You're directing design. Or like you're, you're a design director, right? Sort of. But okay, all right. This is going to be fucking the most annoying question. But what is design? Like what does it mean to be designing things? Because could you not also argue that a design manager or a director of design is applying design practices and principles just not to pixels, but to organization and process and resources, resource allocation. Like you can apply a design process to that, right? Like a uh, hypothesis and research and talk to your users, which in this case would be your reports and like small D, small D designer, sure. But like everybody's a designer, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Okay. Right. Everything because everything is designed. So I mean, I think that might be slightly outside the scope of of this conversation. I, I think like just to, to scope it slightly better, I think it would be uh, or I should say to scope it slightly different, I would I would say, going back to the first tweet of like, she's saying, I can build a high-performing team in less than six months and decrease your turnover. That's not the job of a designer as I think of a designer, right? Like, that's, that's a different thing. It's, and that's a thing that a, a regular old designer couldn't do, right? Agreed. You know, it's, it's, it's very, it takes a specific skill set to build a high-performing team and decrease turnover, assuming that's what she meant, right? But but that's not a skill set that I would expect of a new hire that was coming in as an IC, right? An individual contributor. Okay, so then what would you call a design manager who once in a blue moon has to make mocks? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's still a designer. I, it's okay. Let me let me change let me change the the operative word here from from designer to weightlifter, right? Okay. So a weightlifter lifts weights. If a weightlifter <laughs> that is their job, yeah, they get paid right. a shit ton of money to do it, and that what's that's what makes them a weightlifter is the fact that they lift weights. If you stop lifting weights, you should probably stop calling yourself a weightlifter, right? You were a weightlifter, and maybe being a weightlifter has led to being a coach or you know a, a commentator or something like that. But you're no longer you're no longer that thing. Your role isn't to do that thing. Your role is to do something else. So you're something else. I don't know. That's that's how that's my take out. Maybe I'm being pedantic or or too literal here, but like I don't know. I, and I, I'm not trying to like gatekeep the the term designer by any means, but like words mean things, and when you start calling something a word that it isn't, then you dilute the meaning of that word and then words don't mean anything anymore it's like the word literally people use literally to mean figuratively and now literally (laughs) means both literally and figuratively so i I guess it comes down to the idea of back to my weightlifter metaphor in just the same way that if you're a weightlifter who stops lifting weights if you do go back to lifting weights after having not done it for a while you'll you probably won't be as good at it as you were when you are lifting weights. And and to extend this metaphor, design is a muscle. Designing is a muscle. And if you don't flex that muscle regularly, it starts to atrophy. So if you're doing things that aren't designing, that, that aren't actually like flexing those design muscles in, in the way that I would describe a designer as doing, and if you went back to actually making wireframes and prototypes, you probably wouldn't be as good at it as you once were because you haven't been flexing that muscle and because you haven't been a designer. Okay, so hang on. I think I'm getting to the crux of perhaps what might be controversial here or what people might disagree with, which is the idea that when you become a design leader, and that is manager, director, VP, chief, officer, right? Mm-hmm. When you move to that level, I think what you're suggesting is those people embrace in some way the fact that they can no longer call themselves a designer. They used to be a designer, perhaps, mm-hmm. but they are no longer a designer. And I think it's that disconnect of perhaps like this identity that's been built up or the years of experience having done one thing and suddenly being transitioned and said all of those skills are, are no longer relevant or they're dramatically less relevant. It's that discomfort that ended up kind of being the theme of this tweet thread. Does that sound right? I think an important point to make here too is that like when I say a, a CDO isn't a designer, I'm not I'm not trying to like insult them by saying you're you're not one of us. I'm not trying to like gatekeep or, or say you're less than. If anything, that person is greater than. That person has has evolved. Like I said earlier, like graduated to a a higher level, both literally and figuratively, and they're performing duties that are different from that of your typical designer, the way I would define designer. Okay, I have a couple questions here that lead us to a path that gets us into like contradictory territory. So would it be better to have a manager who knows how to design and has been a designer in the past than one who does not? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I, I should be clear here that like I think the best heads of design are those who were once designers, like or, or any role, anything. Like a, a head of any position at any company in any industry 
is going to be it's going to be better if they had done the job of the people that they manage all the way down preferably to like intern right yeah that person is going to be more well equipped and probably more empathetic to the workforce than someone who had never held that role and just uh, you know stepped into a high level role without the base experience totally agreed okay so then here's where we get into the next part which is should those people stay up to date with what it means to be a designer like our industry is changing the tools are changing patterns and trends and gestures and apis like all of these things are changing every single year should design leaders be responsible for understanding those changes in order to be a better leader yeah at a high level yeah i think so at a high level but these are like low level ideas right like i mean okay maybe we're defining it differently but i, I would say that um Say if if you had a a chief design officer that was super into like skeuomorphic design when every the entire industry had moved to flat design, not because they preferred skeuomorphic design, just because they thought that was still the zeitgeist, then I would I would say that would be a bad thing, right? Like that person should stay up, not so much on like the nitty gritty necessarily, and and certainly not the tools other than to know, oh yeah, most people use Figma, most people use Framer, whatever, but so that they can help provide those tools for the people who are going to be using them, right? Like it's important for them to have their finger on the pulse, but not so much that they don't have time to do the duties that are truly required of them at that, at that level. Does this make sense? Yeah, it does. So I, I understand the distinction between knowing how to do a thing and doing a thing, but it gets a little bit blurry when you have a design leader who used to be a designer who is also keeping up on trends and patterns and new ideas that are happening in design that, that the reports could, could use and learn from. It gets a little blurry to me when, like, they're not a designer, even though they know all of these things. Like, if their output isn't a mock, but they have all the requisites to have created that, and their their job is to guide, you know, one of their reports to have that output, which would be the mock. But they still possess that knowledge and communication skill and and past experience. I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that? <laughs> design managers should get the presidential treatment where it, that is yeah. <laughs> once you've been a president, yeah. you're always, you know, president so-and-so in the same way. Like once you've been a designer, can you just always say designer? Do you think that's a thing or, or are, do titles expire? And I don't necessarily think that it expires. I just think it's an undersell, right? It's an understatement of what you actually do to be a head of design and say you're a designer is like to say, uh, I'm president and also I was uh, chairman of my high school, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, okay, sure. And that probably was a step leading you to the position that you're at right now, but you're underselling what you, what your value is and what you provide, you know what I mean? Like, and also as a descriptor of what your actual duties are in, in your current role. Like I said, I think it's inherent that a head of design was once a designer or has a foundational knowledge of design, but to call yourself an active designer when you are not designing on a regular basis or, or like in years, I think is not only inaccurate, but selling yourself short. All right. So if I were to sum all this up, here's, here's kind of what I'm thinking right now is this tweet thread is really good. And I think that some of the conclusions that it came to are accurate. Like shouldn't 
design leaders move out of the way. Like it would seem unreasonable for a VP of design to be like in the pixels. I I think Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Although I could see situations where maybe they want to bust out that skill. But I think the argument is it's probably not appropriate. Especially if they're good at it. Yeah, if you're good at it. But it it might not be appropriate, right? Like that's not your job anymore. Mm -hmm. But you you can imagine there's, there's certainly situations where like, oh, uh, they're they're getting out their you know their pencils and they're gonna draw on the you know they're gonna draw on a post-it note and show <laughs> oh, me and shit, like here it comes. wow you know like <laughs> and sometimes that that skill never goes away and you don't need to flex the muscle because you're so good at it right but but that, I think that's relatively rare. Okay, so we're, we're agreeing that this evolution should happen. I think the crux of what we're getting to is you are advocating for people to be more comfortable losing the title of designer as they evolve through leadership roles. And think of that as a good thing. It's not a bad thing to be a design manager and say, I am no longer a designer. Do I have your point of view correct? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're graduating out of being a designer into a new, more impactful thing, right? And, and I, I should say, uh, before we started, I was like, I'm going to say some things that I might disagree with in a couple of years. I, I, I uh, rarely have a view that I don't uh, question later. So I may listen back to this in as few as six months and be like, what the fuck was I thinking? I, I was such a stupid idiot. But Well, here, here's a problem I have with what you're saying. Tell me, tell me why I'm wrong. I think it's a huge problem that we view moving from IC design work to design management as graduation. I think that's a problem. You don't think it's an evolution? I think it's an evolution, but it's no better or worse than evolving as that IC to becoming just a better IC. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not. I'm not trying to take any anything away from okay. the IC role. Yeah, I think you can graduate to a higher level there too. There, there are forking paths. For we just sure. have to be careful with the language here. Of like, a design manager is not the evolution. It's it's not the Raichu to the Pikachu. Yes. Yeah. It's a bush, not a line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a sidestep evolution, right? Yeah. It's a fork. A fork. Okay. As long as we have that language clear, because. I do despair a little bit that really, really good ICs feel as though the only way to progress is to become a leader and, and manage people. And I think that's really unfortunate uh, yeah. and often puts people into situations where they like used to be really good at a thing and now they suck at a thing. <laughs> and that's detrimental to themselves and to their org and to the people that have to report to them and all the way well, down. That's how I felt when I became a manager. <laughs> when I first started managing people, I was like, oh, I really suck at this, <laughs> but I tried really hard to not suck at it. Right? Yeah, yeah, and like some people might want to push through. I can, I can just empathize and probably right now certainly identify with a desire to just stay on that IC track and be really, really good. I think that there's a lot of value in that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and then you can retain that sweet, smug look when you say I'm a designer. <laughs> well, and, and maybe I'm speaking from a standpoint of if I were to personally stop doing daily design work, if I were to stop being in sketch and making prototypes and and doing that kind of stuff, and I was more making decks and reviewing things and, you know, thinking about overall company strategy and doing those things, like, I don't know that I would call myself a designer. So maybe I'm projecting that on what other people should do. I I am projecting that on what other people should do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But like, I'm I'm speaking from, this is how I would label myself were I in that situation. Uh, Yeah, okay, makes sense. But I could regret having said all this immediately. I don't know. Yeah, I'll be curious. I'll be curious to see you take that step uh, when you no longer do pixel work or, or the organizational priorities push you to a path where 
it's detrimental for you to be doing pixel work instead of team building and strategizing and all that stuff. And once you hit that point, I want to see if you call yourself a designer. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll be sad if I ever give up the pixels. I love the pixels so much. I, oh, I know. I know. You're all about them. I don't know if I would ever be able to give them up. My hunch, Marshall, is at this point we've lost half the people who are listening and the <laughs> yeah. other half are only listening because they, they're they yelling that they des- define designer differently <laughs> yeah, than we do. they're hate <laughs> listening to me right now. Yeah. Probably, yeah. And, and you know, this is just uh, uh, based on my, this is my initial reaction to that thing of just words mean things and and also don't sell yourself short. You're You're more than a designer at that point. Yeah. All right, well, Lily, if you ever hear this, by some weird chance, thank you for the tweet thread. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we got to have this conversation from it. I think we're very much in agreement with your points of view. Maybe. Well, except for this part of, of the design title, like what it means to just drop that and, and embrace it. But I definitely empathize with the thought of like someone giving you a pity look because you don't make wireframes on the daily. Like <laughs> It's like, dog, have you ever made a wireframe? Like once you're not doing that anymore, it's going to be heaven. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's not yeah, that's not right. Like yeah. you had to be a designer. You know everything they've gone through. You just don't do it anymore. You do something else to help make their job better. Well, that was a hell of a rabbit hole to fall down, Brian. Hopefully that was uh, enjoyable for the listeners. Uh, send all your hate mail to brian at designdetails.fm. Oh, yeah. We'll have to mention the new emails. You can send us emails. Let us know what you thought. Um, we'll get into cool things. And uh, But, you know, as you're mulling this over, if we missed anything, if, if you would approach this conversation differently we'd love to hear from you so tweet at us or or send us a message yeah i'd love to hear why i'm wrong i I heard a phrase recently from a colleague and uh, she said this phrase which was strong opinions loosely held oh buddy dude this is like this is a fucking mantra at github like everybody says this (laughs) yeah yeah i'd never heard that before but it was that's really good it's like yeah, you should have a strong opinion, but I am I'm completely open to changing that opinion based on new evidence or new arguments, right? This is generally a positive thing. Like you want opinionated people who aren't stubborn about those opinions, right? Yep. Or the, at least those people are fun to work with because they don't get hung up on the details. They're opinionated. Mm-hmm. Something that I struggle with personally, yeah. Really? Yeah, I struggle to have strong opinions. I, I, I find myself... Are you even a designer? <laughs> Probably not, dude. (laughs) I find it easy to talk myself into the position where both sides make equal amounts of sense and I want somebody else to just flip the coin. I find it easy to get to that position. I do the same thing, but then I come down on the side. Like I, I try to understand both sides. The goal for me is to be able to argue both sides to each other in a way that they would say, yes, that's that's what I think, right? And then and then I make a decision based on that. Well, I can tell you transparently that from my point of view it's a fear thing like i fear not making the wrong decision i fear the thrash that it causes to have made a wrong decision like i don't really care if i made it but i feel bad for the people who have to implement the correction to that mistake which is me as a designer but also the engineers who are like ugh, like we just did all this work and now we have to do it the other way because we made the wrong decision i know those feels i've, I've made plenty of mistakes yeah, oh my yeah, God, yeah. and i will continue yeah. to make plenty of those mistakes but when i say like i talk myself into a corner it's out of that fear that i'm like oh fuck i have to make the call but i don't want to make the call i want someone else to flip the coin it's a bad excuse and something that i will get better at yeah i mean yeah this is this is a skill into itself of like owning a position and then holding that responsibility for 
that position and 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 owning it when it comes out to be the wrong decision. Yeah, yeah. And and doing everything possible to make sure the right decision gets implemented afterwards. And sometimes that's not the right decision, even the second one, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's the third path? Well, we this could be a whole other topic. I feel like we could talk about decision-making and, and all this kind of stuff for, for a while. Let's jump into cool things. All right, so here's my cool thing for this week. Brian, before the show started, I, I forced into your eye holes a video on YouTube, <laughs> and it's a band who makes music. As bands tend to do. And I stumbled across them because I think I've mentioned on the show before NPR Tiny Desk concerts. Yes, yes, they are very fun. Because I watch those, they every once in a while get recommended to me. And based on the thumbnail and my mood at the time, I click on them or don't. And I just happened to click on this one this one time, probably last year at some point. And the band is named Hobo Johnson and the Lovemakers. I think they're just called Hobo Johnson now, which is... A stupid name for a band. <laughs> it's nice. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's catchy. It's kind of a stupid name for a band. But the thing about it is I, I don't think I would like this band had I not watched them and seen them in person and made like kind of a, a through the screen human connection with, with the people making the music rather than just the music itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. And I'm in the same position having seen the video. Okay, yeah. So and this is exactly the, the experience you had when I when I showed it to you, which makes me so happy, as you can tell by the sound of my voice. But the thing about the the band is like the lead singer it's not rapping, it's not singing, it's more like spoken word poetry to music with like background screaming vocals. <laughs> this sounds terrible. It sounds like a terrible thing yeah, that I'm you, describing. Yeah, you sold this really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's very, very good. And and by way of poetry, I mean, like the, the guy writes really great lyrics and and it's a it's a performance, right? Um, in a different way, it's it's something that I've kind of never heard before which is strange to say and you know in this millennium right like nothing new under the sun right so right. but uh since then i have become a big fan of hobo johnson and he's just such an endearing guy that you you want to like and he makes you like him and they make good music and th their music videos have really increased in production quality recently. I think they got picked up by a label, probably based on this Tiny Desk concert. And the cool thing about the Desk concert is that they won it. Like, they were an entry in some contest, and they got to be on the show, and now they have a career that their band is actually successful because they got a foot up on this platform, which is really, really cool. So Hobo Johnson, and uh, they have a new album out called The Fall of Hobo Johnson, which I feel like is hedging as far as like, well, we made one album and nobody <laughs> liked it. So, and, but it was called the Fall of Hobo Johnson. So we predicted it. So we're, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes me wonder if it's hedging, but it's good. It's as good as their original EP, if not better. And I really enjoy it. And and their music videos are good. So check it out, Hobo Johnson, especially. But but I would I would recommend start with the NPR Tiny Desk concert. Link at the show notes. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And and that's that's your gateway. And once once you're there. You'll you'll stay there, I think. Good thing, and yeah, we had fun watching that. Marshall and I, we count down and press play at the same time and watch independently. And <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. always nice. It's, yeah. it's very cute. Long it's distance <laughs> co-watching. Three, two, one, play. All right, cool. Uh, well, my thing this week is not as interesting, uh, or at least as fun as music, but it is an article about something that I have not really understood, and that is iOS shortcuts. Okay. I don't know how to use them. 
like I haven't made any, or I've made one, but it's like the most basic thing. It, oh, you're talking about the actual app called Shortcuts. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm with you now. Sorry. I thought I thought you were talking about like hidden gestures and oh, shit no, like that. Like, okay. Okay. No, okay. Short capital S shortcuts. So we we mentioned this a couple weeks ago that the biggest challenge with shortcuts isn't the app itself and like creating them, like the creation flows and editing, like all that kind of makes sense. It's more the creativity of knowing what would make an interesting shortcut. Like what's something that's genuinely useful that saves you time. And this sort of overlaps into like your home, smart home episode we did a long time ago, which is like the tools are all there and they're all accessible and affordable. It's just having the creativity to think about how you want them to work and how you want it to augment your life. And I'm just, I really struggle to get over that hill. So anyways, I'm just going to plug for my cool thing this week. It's an article from a website called The Sweet Setup called iOS Shortcuts, the ultimate guide for resources, examples, libraries, triggers, and more. And it's kind of like a, uh, it's a beginner's guide to like what, why, how, and then there's a bunch of links to like send you down the rabbit hole. But like there's some things that it point out that I actually didn't know that you could do. So you can have shortcuts respond to, like you can buy little NFC chips that you could stick around your house and and like tap your phone against them to trigger certain things, which is interesting. Like that's a, a variable that I hadn't considered, which I guess maybe you're comfortable with, Marshall, with your smart home hobbyism. What's the word there? Uh, yeah, hobbyism is fine. I, I, this is a little bit more manual than I would prefer. Like the whole point of the smart home is that it just reacts intuitively to the the situation and, and goes into a state that is preferable. I don't want to touch anything. I don't want to turn any lights on or off. I don't want, uh, I don't want to get up. Right, right, right. Yes. Okay, so this is like the, the poor man's version of smart home. Like I don't want to buy all the crazy hardware. I just want my phone to do a lot of things. Anyways, that's my plug this week for people who are also interested in shortcuts or have been struggling to like understand applications for it or just want to get a little bit of inspiration. I thought this was a good article with plenty of links to head down the rabbit hole and find more things. Were there any that stood out to you as like, I didn't even know that was other than the NFC tags. Like, was there anything that was like, wow, that's that's a cool thing. And I, I can think of an application for that. Yeah. So the, the list of things, they list out all the things that can trigger an automation. And there's a few that I just had no idea were triggers. So one is the NFC tags, but you can also trigger things when your phone hits low power mode, when you turn on do not disturb, when you connect Bluetooth devices, when you connect to a specific Wi-Fi network, when your phone's almost out of battery, like all of these things can be triggered triggers for a shortcut. And I didn't realize that that was a thing. I thought it was like me either. When you receive a notification, do this thing. Uh, another one is like when you open an app. So if you open an app, you can have a trigger to do something. So I think the example they gave was uh, if I open my note taking app, kick off an automation to trigger a like a streaks, like a habit tracker that you don't journaled today. So you could have the process of opening the app trigger that other thing so you don't have to open two apps every time. Interesting. Yeah, so like this is, you're listening to me in real time, like learn the ingredients. It's like listening to a a cooking podcast where they're like, and did you know salt exists? But yeah, I I didn't know. So these are cool triggers that I want to dig into. All right, well, that's it. We hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter. Tweet at us, Design Details FM. If you have your own questions for us, go to our repo at github.com slash specfm. You'll find the Design Details repo there and you can open an issue and ask us a question. And that's where we're keeping track of all that. Uh, If you want to ask anonymously, you can also DM us or you can email us. Uh, You can email 
brian at designdetails.fm or marshall at designdetails.fm. And on that note, you can also go to designdetails.fm. We've been working a little bit on the site. So we have all of our sweet Patreon supporters listed up there. This week, I added a little player to show the the most recent episodes. You can make that a little destination. But we have been brainstorming some ideas for the Design Details website. So hopefully changes to come there. We're just trying to figure out how to prioritize and scope. If you've been enjoying the show, even if this was your first episode and you want to support us, head to patreon.com slash design details. Your contributions uh, offset the cost of us producing and editing and releasing the show. So thank you to everyone who's supporting us already. And for those of you on the fence, even a dollar a month makes a huge difference. So uh, that's patreon.com slash design details. In the meantime, if you need more podcasts for your ears, head to spec.fm. It's our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. We have more shows on there that are edited and produced by our our editor and producer, Sarah and Drew. So if you want more of their work, head to spec.fm. Thank you, Sarah and Drew, for another episode in the bag. And we'll see you next week. Oh, we have one more thing. So last week, Marshall, you did tease, what if we let our supporters control the, the sign-off? Uh-huh. And we got some suggestions. All right, here, here we go. This is, this is suggested by Carl Koch. Hope I'm saying your name right. Peace out, nerds. We do have one more thing. Yeah, we do. And oh, one more thing. Shit, did you do that on purpose? Hang on. Can I put on my Steve Jobs hat really quick? Yeah. All right, here it comes. Ready? Yeah. And one more thing. <laughs> Uncanny. <laughs> Are you alive, Steve? Oh, my God, you're back. How good? Was that pretty good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>